What's up, you absurd junkies? I'm your host among hosts, Cole Adam Davis. Welcome back to another episode of Absurd Curiosity Podcast. For those of you who are new, welcome. We mostly talk about gaming, technology, medicine, science, a lot more science than gaming. But really, we just make sure to laugh and have a great time while doing so. The conversation you're going to see change the way that I operate. It made me really take a step back and realize, or, or more analyze my habits. Dr. Julie Gurner is an amazing performance coach slash psychologist. She guides many amazing people to be better than themselves yesterday through techniques verified and justified through psychology and many rigorous tests. I hope you could take the lessons that she gave Sean, Stephen, and I and apply them to your own life to be better than who you are yesterday and to reach the potential you deserve. I hope you enjoy this video. Thank you for watching. We have a couple questions. We, we, we got to talk to you for about 10 or 15 minutes already, and that was great. Uh, we have some other questions that are have, have nothing to do with the podcast. These are these are really out there, but they're just the way to, to break the ice, and we call them icebreakers. So, Cole, without further ado, if you would like to go with the first icebreaker. Yeah, sure. Did you, Dr. Julie, did you ever use my dumpling recipe whatsoever? Oh, I did not use it. I, <laughs> I been cooking on weekends and my weekends have been insanely busy lately the pandemic if anybody is going to reach out to a psychology doctor this has been the, <laughs> so, uh, the dumplings have taken a back burner for now but i still have the recipe on lock and ready to go have you made my burger recipe then at least <laughs> i haven't but let me tell you they look delicious and i've seen them all the time <laughs> and they're mouthwatering. So if you're going to recommend a, a, a book, do you have a favorite book but that's not a self-help book? Um, I love Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets. If that's too close, let me know. But um, <laughs> I think that book really challenges people to think differently, and it challenged me to think differently. And that's tough to do sometimes. So I appreciated her perspective. And, you know, coming from a background where, you know, she's a former poker player. She also has some training in psychology. And I loved her approach to, you know, how to make decisions and how to think about things in a very different way. So it's probably one of my favorites. Um, another one that I really love is... Uh, Felix Dennis had a book, How to Be Rich. And the thing I love about that book is that the guy wrote it himself and he takes a lot of pride in that. And most of the time when people write books like this, they don't write them themselves, they use ghostwriters. Felix Dennis has a really funny personality. He loved uh, his life. He led a very kind of debaucherous life. Um, and so he kind of really does it up on this book and lays it out. And I think it's a, a great read and a lot of fun. I saw you tweet about uh, gambling, something else about gambling today or about bets or betting today or something. Are you a much of a, you're much of a gambler? I know you like, stuff. you seem like you have the, I, the risk or it was something about risk. You have to risk a lot to, to grow or something, right? I'm a big fan of risk and I'm a big fan of taking it. And I love, um, I think that we were talking, maybe it wasn't you and I, but like I was talking about snow skating and, um, and I'm a competitive person. And I think that really benefits the work that I do, but I'm a, I'm a taker of risk, but kind of balanced risk, right? I'm not like jumping out of planes or doing things like that, but I'm really a fan of even like investing. I'm in crypto. Some people think that's high risk. I really mm -hmm. don't. Um, but there's a lot of things that I, I kind of place bets in, I guess. And I think that's the only way you get ahead. What'd you think about that $69 million NFT from Beeple that sold this week? You know, I think it's fantastic. That guy's been working, what, every day for 14 years? He yeah, 5,000 days. Yeah, that's insane. Oh, big payday. And then he offered it all payday. to Elon Musk for his one that he For 420,000 <laughs> or what was it? Doge? 
420 million yeah. does. 420 like million does, right, right. Like so, I think it's fantastic. I mean, like, that guy's been working so hard. And if it was a guy who was building a company for 14 years, we wouldn't have thought twice about it. So yeah. I'm, all, I'm all for it. It's yeah, insane it to see how prominent money laundering is in the NFTs right now. Really? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I saw a little article on it. I didn't get to fully read it, but they were like, "Yeah, there's a lot of money being laundered with NFTs." I think there's a lot of money going into art and you know apartments, and I mean, there's a lot of ways that money gets laundered. Mm. So I think <laughs> NFTs are just one way that's kind of oh, yeah. getting attention right now, but not the really the only way that it happens. So I hope that people don't uh, grab onto that. Yeah, art and real estate is always notorious for uh, for money laundering schemes. Oh, 100%. Buy it for fifty thousand, sell it for fifty million, and you know, it's a fair market deal. <laughs> so, Julie, when when I was younger, I wanted to be an architect or a chemist. Um, I was never gifted in the math department at all. I, I ended up finding something that I was I was really passionate about, and I'm. I'm extremely happy to, to be able to do what I do. But architecture and chemistry were what I you know, envisioned when I was in elementary school. That was like, I'm going to be an architect when I grow up. Um, I, I didn't do well yeah. in algebra. Uh, so when you were younger, what did you want to be? When I was younger, I wanted to be a surgeon. Um, that I was always a really meticulous kid. I was the kid that like my dad's watch, I would like take it apart and, you know, much to his dismay. And then I couldn't put it back together again. <laughs> so maybe I wouldn't have been a good surgeon. But I was really into that little the meticulousness of those small moving parts, taking something apart, mm. putting it back together, kind of being uh, a mechanic of that way. And I even went to, you know, when I went to school, I started pre-med with that thought that I was going to be a surgeon and then i took some classes in you know philosophy and psychology and just absolutely fell in love so i ended up going a different direction so what made you go from psychology to a performance coach that's a good question you know when i was working in psychology i started off very traditionally and i started off a while ago so really there wasn't as much like the, the tech scene or any of that so when i started off really traditionally I was working at, I started off at a prison uh, doing forensics. My area of expertise was actually like adult psychopathology and forensics. So I started there. Um, I did some work at a hospital. I've done work in academics. But what I noticed was that, you know, when I was working in this private psychiatric facility, is that there was all of this research that kind of was speaking about the brain, how it functions best, how people uh, can cope, how they make decisions. Uh, but it's all focused on individuals who were ill and you know getting them to a place of wellness and i just saw it as a big pile of information that wasn't being used toward people who were healthy but may need some tweaks and may need some kind of extra something to make them optimal and we had all of this brain research all of this psychological research and it's just sitting there and we're using it only for one purpose instead of reapplying it to people who are you know fully functional doing well but might really benefit from some of the insights of that research and so i just became kind of obsessed by that mm -hmm. and um and then began kind of exploring that had an opportunity to work with a startup company um who was looking for an advisor for an email app and cognitive load and I started to talk to more people in tech and I realized, you know, oh my God, there's such a need for people to really help others with some of these obstacles that they're facing. And they were so clear to me, but it wasn't really clear to them. And when I had the opportunity to do some work there, I realized things move quickly. Uh, the things that I do would be really valuable. And I kind of hopped in from there. Now, earlier on, on your uh, statement, you talked about for forensic psychology. I'm not, I mean, 
what is that? Is that like when Dr. Phil was interviewing uh, criminals or like, what, what, is, what is that? So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of different parts to it. So I started um, my, you know how when you go to medical school, I'm sure that you'll encounter this as well. There's a bit of a matching system at some point yeah. where you have your area of expertise. And for me, I matched with a, um, a group out in Wyoming who did evaluations for competency and for sanity. So, you know, is this person competent to stand trial? And then looking at their mental state at the time of the offense to see if they qualified for the insanity defense. And, you know, uh, working with those who were standing trial for for different offenses. You know, the insanity defense is also, you know, used if you write bad checks. So it's not always like a sad, horrible murder case. Um, I did work there uh, in my pre-doc, and then I went on to do some work at a, um, a supermax facility for a while, looking at you know risk and assessing risk. People um, who were doing, uh, had various crimes, but had some mental health issues as well. Uh, I worked in the MHU, which is a mental health unit. So people who were there because either of the nature of their crimes, they couldn't be with the general population, you know, if you hurt children or you do something like that, you're not a popular inmate. Mm -hmm. But also people who are just, you know, floridly psychotic and really had some real struggles. So I got to talk to some really interesting people who've done a number of different types of crimes. And, um, you know, you learn a lot about yourself and you learn a lot about people. What is, what was one of the weirdest cases you've got, you, you got at this Supermax facility? Um, are you allowed to I talk about that? Yeah, I, may, I don't think that I'm able to give any kind of details. Well, I mean, okay, yeah, but I mean, like, is there any, like, vague description that you can give us? Sure. I remember um, one of the things that, I'll give you one from earlier in Wyoming, because it, it would be, I think, a more vague and, and kind of easier to, to talk about in a general way. Okay. I was paired with a gentleman who did forensic evaluations who was an older guy, uh, really grizzled kind of Wyoming guy. And so we would evaluate a number of people all across the state of Wyoming for, for before they stood trial uh, for types of defenses and things like that. And I think one of the more interesting ones was a gentleman who was a serial rapist. Um, and I found that really fascinating because uh, I was able to ask him questions about the crimes, but he was he talked very, very openly about, you know, why he selected the people he did, um, you know, what made someone a victim. Uh, why he chose the people he did. And I didn't ask him those particular questions, but they ended up coming out throughout the co the course of our conversation. And I think that it was interesting for me, not because he was a serial rapist, but because it really revealed, you know, how people sometimes choose victims based on opportunity and really nothing else. Um, and it made me much more mindful, certainly, of, you know, where I go, what I do, what situations I put myself in, and it made me much more aware for other people I know as well. Did did you are there any lessons that you can share from that for our female viewers that they can, you know, kind of like look out for? Like just like simple points or is that something that you didn't really look at? Sure. I mean, I think that he would always look for someone who was, you know, a vulnerable target. Um, you know, if you're not in a well-lit area, you're not otherwise occupied or distracted, um, you're not somebody, he would even look at the way that someone walked if he thought they would be a fight. Um, there would be a lot of different things that he would try to pick up on. And really? sometimes, That's yeah, interesting. The, thing that, wow. the thing I thought was really fascinating is he said that when people would, you know, so every now and again, when he was walking down the street, someone would catch his eye and he, they'd say hello. 
and they would never be his victim. And I thought that was really interesting because they kind of personalized themselves and huh. uh, wow. all of a sudden it shocked him. I don't know if that's true across the board, but it was so true he for this to distance, them, distance himself uh, emotionally from them. So possibly. look at them more as possibly as an object rather than an, another human. That is interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm very fascinated at how criminals mm -hmm. work. I, I don't like them, obviously. You know, I, I don't I like people that rape people. But I'm, I think the psychology that goes on that makes these people who they are, very interesting. Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. So I make that an effort as well now when I'm walking. If it's really late at night or something, I'll, I'll make sure that I say hello, do something ridiculous like that. Really? That's interesting. Huh. Actually changed your, your, what you do. Definitely. Mm. Wow. Definitely. Yeah. I didn't realize as I'm a guy, I mean, I'm a small guy, but I, I've never had to fear of doing something. I, mm. I didn't, I never realized that until one of my friends, uh, we were at a party. It was during college and, uh, I think it was like 12 at night and she was like, Hey, can you walk me to your car? I trust you. And I was like, what? And that, that statement just shocked me because normally if I just want to go out to my car, I'll just go out to my car. I don't really have that fear that somebody might come and take me. And that's really prevalent for women. I didn't realize that. You should though, Cole, you're a tiny guy. So Dude. Okay. You'd be easy to steal. Uh, 100%. They could, they could just throw <laughs> me in a duffel bag. They could just throw me in a duffel bag and I'm gone. <laughs> So you you know you got quite a Twitter following you know you got um, you've been featured in a lot of articles and things. What was your first big break that that you broke away or got a you know Jesus was like an overnight success or was it a slow ramp? Like, what was the the first TikTok? Big... TikTok is your TikTok? Blown <laughs> I think up yet? the first. <laughs> I don't have TikTok. I don't think that I'd be a very popular TikTok. My life is boring. Like I don't think I'm, you'd I'm be surprised. You would be really? very surprised. Yeah. Yeah. The therapy gecko is is amazingly popular. It's a guy that dresses up as a gecko and answers call-in questions. He's not a therapist, but it's 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 wonderful. Is that legal to give advice like that if you're not? He a tells you right up front, this is not advice. I'm not therapist. This is not financial advice. You are you are asking a a, a guy dressed as in a gecko suit with his face painted green. But I'm sorry. Oh my goodness. No, I think that my big break came when uh, it was a long time ago. You know, I've been doing this for over ten years, so I think it was a long time ago when I was consulting with this company and they were growing and growing and growing and um and i ended up doing some work with their venture firm as well the company ends up selling for quite a bit of money you know like hundreds of millions of dollars um and then i think that i was able to kind of get more exposure through that and then i began to get picked up by you know a couple other firms or a couple of other founders kind of knew who i was and then i started to kind of take off from there so it really was something that just kind of built over time and then when the show Billions came on, then finally people kind of got it. I think that previous to that show, and I think that show was like 2015, 2016, I don't know really when that was, but there was kind of a place in popular culture where they were able to say, okay, we understand what a performance coach does now, an executive performance coach, we get it. Uh, before that, they were kind of like, is it therapy? Is it, you know, and they kind of didn't get that. Um, and for me, you know, I don't do therapy that's you know not in the range of services that I provide at all and um, and I, I think that was very difficult for people to understand you know how do you have a doctorate in psychology but you don't do therapy uh, but there are many <laughs> different types of psychologists out there you know there's quantitative psychologists experimental psychologists but the only ones that people know of really are counseling or are doing that kind of work what percent would you say of the people that you like work directly with in this are people that like came to you of their own volition because they want to get better because they were like volunteered from their, you know, their, their employer or whatever. 
I don't get, I, I don't take clients who are volunteers. <laughs> so I, I mean, I, like that I, I don't, I don't because I find they're not very good clients. Mm. Like I don't, if you're not internally motivated, I don't want to work with you. Right. I definitely have had employers say, I'd love for you to work with this or this executive and I'll meet with them. And I'm like, okay, they want to really improve. They're really motivated. Like I'm all in. But if somebody is like sentenced to meet with me, I, I, have, I want nothing to do with that. And I don't need to take them. You know, I take 12 clients, I have 12 clients I carry a month and then I have some corporate contracts. Um, but yeah, I get really fussy about who I take because I don't, there, every person that walks away from their work with me is kind of a walking billboard for the quality mm -hmm. of work that I do. And so, you know, I'll fire clients. I've certainly fired a client that <laughs> really? didn't want to get invested Absolutely. So like, you know, people who work with me, it's not just what we do during that hour, but it's mm -hmm. what they're expected to continue to work on and to do right. and to implement and to execute. And if they're not doing those things, you know, that's going to damage my reputation down the line. That's certainly not going to get results. And if they're not getting results, I'm not invested. You know, like, I don't want that. I have other people waiting and, um, and I'd rather, you know, hop on board with people who want to, to kind of get to the next level. So the, the opposite of voluntold, do you have anyone that you're like, I want to work with this person? Like, is it like an Elon Musk or a Tim Cook or a, yeah. a Jeff Bezos? Or like, is there anyone that you're like, I want to work with them badly? Okay, the person I would want to work with may seem like- it's, So you have your person, okay. Oh, absolutely. The person that I would want to work with uh, is someone that you probably would never expect, which would be Kris Jenner. Really? No. Oh, Why is that? Would be my choice. Chris huh? Jenner it has built an absolute empire, right? I mean, mm. she's built a billion-dollar business. She's built multi-hundred million-dollar businesses. The woman has a lot of stress in her life. She certainly has a lot of things going on with her family, and um, and I think she'd be an incredibly mm. um, an amazing client to have because I feel like that's a woman who knows she has no limits. And she's been mm. able to do things that are against culture and win mm. over and over and over again. She capitalizes on opportunities. And I would love to kind of understand more about why she does what she does, how she directs things the way that she does. And she also keeps a pretty low profile behind the scenes, even though she is really the architect of, you know, multiple businesses that are hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in value, along with kind of a billion or $2 billion um, of value. So. I think that she would be an amazing person to work with. And I don't think that she'll be calling me anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Maybe after this podcast. Maybe, right? Oh, yeah. Maybe at this podcast, yeah. she'll be watching it and just be like, you know what? Dr. Julie Gerner <laughs> is the person I need. But now that you mention it, yeah, she actually has some business plans that are wildly successful that I think even a business a person with a business degree would look at the plan and say, I'm not sure that would work, but somehow it does and it works very well. This isn't on here, but I feel like if I don't ask you, I'll forget. How important do you think reality distortion is to being successful? I think there has to be a sense of self-belief that is really not uh, influenced by what people are saying around you. That you can kind of modify your plans. And I think you have mm. to be open sometimes that the path doesn't always look the way you think it will. But your sense of self-belief really does have to be firm. And I don't think that that has to be delusional. It's just seeing something right. yeah, it's a that harsh other word. people may word. not believe yeah. in. Yeah. But it's yeah. seeing something that other people may not believe in. You know, Musk does that brilliantly, I think, like yes. with Neuralink, with, you know, some of those other things. I mean, they're brilliant ideas. They're important ideas. They have a place in society. And I think he understands that they have a place in society, mm. but how those are executed or implemented 
he really does have a lot more flexibility in that he's willing to trust his engineers and trust people who are experts in their field to make that happen. And I think that's exactly how it works. Well, he is the techno king. Yes, his new title is Techno yeah. King of Tesla. Yeah, well, it's true. You have your, your New York poster behind you. I have my New York flag and yeah. my, my Brooklyn Bridge uh, poster over here. What what attracted you? Are, you? are you from New York? Were you attracted to New York? Is there, there some reason for you to have um, to, to pretty much, were, were you like, did you found yourself there? Like, what, what was the, uh, the the whole draw? Well, you know, I grew up on a farm in Western Pennsylvania, so New York was not necessarily like running through my veins at that time. Um, <laughs> so we had like a couple hundred acres and, you know, grew up in that way. But I knew that like when we went uh, to New York and I had visited a few times, you know, earlier on that I'd kind of found my tribe, like the, in mm. the energy is amazing. People are ambitious. There are a mix of industries, which I really like. So you could be sitting at a bar and, and have a great conversation with someone who's a trader, a banker, but you could also have a great conversation with someone who's a founder, somebody who's an attorney. I mean, there's eight different languages in the room. It's wonderful. And I just felt so energized. Everybody's ambitious. They're all driving. And, uh, and it just felt like such a great place to be and really energizing. What is the next place that you would rather move to if it wasn't for like the New York area? And why is it Austin? Yeah, why is it Austin too? <laughs> <laughs> not Austin. Um, it's not Austin. I think that, you know, the reason why it's not Austin, not because you all have wonderful taxes. So if you're in Austin, you know, that's amazing. But for me, I think it would be probably culture shock. When I had to spend time in Wyoming just uh, for the year that I was there, I think they might have thought I was an alien. I expected things to be done more quickly. I thought that people should speak faster, walk faster, like get results faster. And they were like, what is happening with you woman? Like calm down, everything's gonna be okay. Um, so I do think that pace uh, of some, although I think Austin is better than many places, but I think that the pace would be very challenging for me personally. And I need a place, I think like the city, uh, a lot of people are like me. So I think if I had to choose another location, and that would be tough. I, I love Miami. I know that's very hot right now, but I actually do really love Miami and I go there when I can uh, because I love the beach and the vibe and the food and the uh, all of that stuff. So I don't know what it's like now and I hope that it remains as amazing as it used to be. Cool. Yeah, I was thinking about something to say, and then I just like completely. You a little deep in thought there. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking, and I was hoping somebody else was picking up something while I was speaking, but no, nobody picked it up. It was just awkward silence on my part. So, um, <laughs> so how do you run your day to day? Because I'm always interested in hearing about how people do that because i'm actually quite inspired by elon i don't go as far as elon does because he schedules or he has people schedule like every five minutes of his day right i do every 15 yeah. minutes and i schedule it myself do you do something like that or like how do you make yourself feel on schedule how do you make yourself most efficient so i sit down every sunday and i do a weekly schedule so i i know that i'm not going to be able to set something up every day or I'll end up just putting out fires and getting distracted. So I want to make sure that I have like, I have definite goals I want to push forward. I have things that are things that need to be done now, right? I have things that have a definite deadline. And then I have things that like I'm working toward personally in my business or progress I need to pull forward. 
And I make sure that I get in a few essential things. So much like you guys, I make sure I get in fitness time, right? So I block out an hour for that. I make sure that I have time where I'm learning. So I block out an hour to read research every morning. Make sure that, you know, and on top of that, then I schedule meetings, but I always make sure that I have a screen break between most of them, just so I get that kind of cognitive recharge and I'm able to just take a moment away from my computer. What, what do you and do like, during that time for your cognitive uh, recharge? It's a good question. You know, like sometimes it sounds really silly. Sometimes I'll go and like get a snack. I'll go and like go for a walk and like listen to a podcast. Uh, sometimes I'll do things like that just mm -hmm. to kind of get out of the house, um, get myself out of looking at a screen and sometimes I won't play anything and I'll just, you know, walk around the neighborhood or something like that just to think about a problem that, I, that I'm trying to solve or something I'm trying to, uh, to strategize around. And I find that that's really useful to have some movement while I'm doing that because I don't know about you all, but when I exercise, I often have like music, like headphones or things like that. So I can't really get a lot of thinking in at that time. When I was at a gym, I used to use the sauna for that time. And I used to love that yeah. because oh, yeah. saunas, saunas are so great and they're wonderful for improving your like HGH as well. Uh, so I would always use it like after a hard workout, I would go there and I'd think and I'd kind of use it for both physical and kind of mental stuff as well. Mm. But now you have to really be very intentional and that gets really hard. I oh, see. So you probably can't go into a public sauna anymore, right? That's uh, and, and with a mask okay. on too. I, I don't know how how well that works. So as a steam room, I, I think that's impossible. A, a sauna, maybe. I don't know, but I, I'm telling you, I think now. I mean, the first few months after the pandemic, we were all like, I, I know that for us, we had Rogue Fitness on. Like, as soon as we get that email that like dumbbells are back in stock. It was like Christmas morning when we finally Me and you like, were talking about this. Me and you were talking about I think this yeah. is why the like, cow we connected originally because they are Ooh. they are really great quality but geez, they are out all the time. All the time. Did you, did you and you get your um, on it, so I didn't. I didn't. In fact, I never ended up getting a bike. Um, I ended up getting like a stepper and then some other things, but uh, yeah, I didn't end up getting a bike. Although um, I know that you have a discount code or something for this Peloton that you're pushing. I, so he does have a discount. <laughs> I, I I love it. You know, I, that, all my wards are Peloton now because it's it, you know they give you a, a store credit for the apparel shop when you refer, and so like my all my it's like Lululemon and nice stuff, you know. So uh, yeah. nice. I love it though. I love nice. it. I nothing and ride it an hour and a half every day at least. Yeah, he absolutely kills it. The only way I can keep the leaderboard on our fitness. <laughs> So, <laughs> otherwise, great. Uh, otherwise, I'll get smoked. I can't. I can't go out and run it. So. <laughs> Actually, I was gonna say, if you had an, uh, an iPhone and Apple Watch, we would be inviting you all the time. You seem like a very competitive are, are person you, to I'm, get into it. I'm an Android yeah. person. Yeah. <laughs> you? Yeah. No, I just switched oh. over from Android. I, I've, I've carried both for years, and then I got the Apple Watch, and, and for an, I appeared, and my work phone wouldn't let me like turn on the cellular data, and then I just made the switch. I, you know, I, I was enjoying the watch so much, and then I did the whole ecosystem. Right now, I got the Mac Mini, the AirPods, the tablet thing. Oh, whole so, in, in the eyes of a, of a performance coach, why is Android superior in every way? I'm going to be honest, I have two Macs for computers. And then I, I do for as well. My yep. watch, yeah, I have like the Samsung watch and I have a Samsung Note phone because I, I won't switch from the Note. I take I actually do use the stylus to take notes on it. Gotcha. Um, and it's a phone that I prefer. So I can use it as a mini computer when I travel. And so I don't really need to bring anything else. So it's really looped me in. 
uh, in that way. And if they do away with that, which I heard that they are, I may end up switching. They so they we'll are, but I believe that well, they're getting rid of the note series entirely. But I heard really? that they might yeah. be bringing the oh, the pin to some other phones. The, the ultra, or yeah, the, the ultra or something like that. So, mm. but but I I actually that's the phone. Whenever I was on Samsung, that's I used the Note Eight for mm. like four years, and it was fantastic. Like it literally fell off the back of my mom's truck going forty, and it still worked for some some wow. unknown. Was that the one that caught on fire? The Note Eight. No, that was a Note Seven. Don't be confused. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Note Seven is banned. The Note Seven is banned from flying on airlines. Yes. So I, I've got a question. Do you believe people are born great leaders, or do you think they are molded into becoming one? I think they're made, and I think that science supports that. You know, the average, the most successful entrepreneurs are in their forties, and that includes tech startups. You know, um, and the reason why it tends to be in their mid forties is that they've gathered all this experience, right? They, that's what they're able to use. Although we highlight the phenomenal stories of very young founders who end up doing very well, they are the smallest percentage of successful mm. founders. So I think that when we look at science and kind of look at statistics, uh, those in their 40s are like killing it. And it's usually because of the experience that they bring. It's not that all of a sudden, you know, their genetics bloom in their 40s and they uh, actually <laughs> into the leaders that they should be. So I do think that it's something that um, it is created and that you make. And, you know, when I think about myself, even, you know, I really didn't get into entrepreneurship until later. And I think that if somebody would have offered me an opportunity paid really well and that allowed me to have the kind of growth and be able to follow my own interests the way that I can now, I probably would have taken that job and been incredibly happy. But sadly, I don't think that anybody's going to do that for me. And I found I felt my, myself being very frustrated at work because, you know, whether I did a terrible job or I did a fantastic job, I, I pretty much got paid the same. And there's nothing kind of more discouraging than that. So I watched another podcast with you and you talked quite a bit about burnout. It was some time ago. And I was wondering if your views maybe have gotten more complex since then. Yeah, I think that one of the things that I've seen is that, you know, people are working more than they ever had before. Like when they were in an office, they had at least like they would come home. It's typical to do a little bit of work. But now it's like everyone's on a beeper. It's like you're always uh, you're always on. You're always having to check. You always, always have to worry about it. And that that's a stress. Are we addicted to it then at this point? I think the expectation is there. Uh, you know, there's one guy that I work with that I, I just absolutely love him as a boss. And one of the things that he does is he sets a very hard off switch for his team. So he'll do things like say, all right, after eight o'clock, no one is on Slack. No one should be emailing. No one should be doing work unless there's like the company is on fire. Like there's no reason to do that. Do not be like he doesn't want people on Slack on the weekends. He doesn't want you working on weekends. And because of that, you know, the productivity of his company is absolutely outstanding. Really? People have a lot of loyalty around that because they're like, I'm not giving this up. I mean, this guy mm. actually has an off switch. He's, you know, kind of a, a boss who demands a lot when you're on, but he definitely has gotcha. things built in that are really smart, like having a no meeting Wednesday. I mean, that has been a game changer <laughs> where, you know, the deal is you are to be doing work on Wednesdays, like that is your head down time because what ends up happening is you have so many meetings, you don't have any time to get the work done or you're trying to figure it out in between meetings. And you know, that's also stressful and causes burnout. Mm -hmm. So he says, look, if you have any doctor's appointments, if you have anything, make it Wednesday, do all your work on Wednesday, but I expect you, 
Yeah, and I he expects people to be, you know, on their game throughout the rest of the week. There's no mm-hmm. reason that you should be going to a doctor's appointment on a Thursday or a Monday or, you know, that you, unless it's an emergency. But the way it's set up, it both gives people time, but it also allows to really push. And I think that's really, when you look at training schedules of even elite athletes push, like you look at Kobe Bryant's training schedule, you'll see like he pushes super hard for a few hours. Then he actually comes home and t- took a break for like a couple hours. And then he'd go back to the gym and push a few hours. Then he'd take a break. Um, you can't be like 100% all in for hours at a time. Yeah, I mean, are, are we fooling ourselves in that way? You know, I mean, yeah. my, so my, my sister's husband Absolutely. is an attorney and he like borderline prides himself in being busy and always having something to do with, with my work recently. It's, it, there's, there's probably a, like, to be totally transparent, there's probably like a, a hint of like, I pride myself in always having stuff on the calendar. And, and, and like, I feel like I'm like, the more stuff there is, the more I'm doing, the more, and then it's like, am I, am I just, am I fooling myself? Or are we fooling each other with this whole, oh, look how much I'm doing today. I'm so busy. I'm, it sounds like we're, we're, we're doing more harm than good at the, you know, in the end. I think that, you know, you can see it even within yourself. If you're fresh, you can kick through an email and like, you know, even a, a more detailed thing in like 10 minutes. But if you're at the end of your day and you're tired, that same 10 minute task takes mm-hmm. you like a half an hour, mm-hmm. 40 minutes, starts to drag. So like the, the key to really having an effective workday is energy management. It's not time management, it's like energy management. So that's why I try to build in where, okay, I have a meeting and then I do this thing and then I'm kind of recharged, I come back. Then I'm like all in and then, you know, I have this little break and then I come back because if I have really effective energy management, I can bring my A game to the table when it's expected, you know, when I'm meeting with clients, they're going to expect that I'm not coming to the table tired because they happen to be in a time zone that isn't convenient for me. so that's kind of how I learned to work it and how I really coach others to work their schedule is to look at your own energy management. When are you at your best? Put your hardest tasks there, take some time off um, and then get back in it. But it, it makes you more effective and you end up getting more done and having a much more pleasant life. Uh, so I encourage people to do it. It doesn't sound as sexy as like I'm grinding it out, staring at a screen for 15 <laughs> hours, but it's a better life, right? So that's that's a remedy as far as what you you help out clients with too. But is, is there a commentary that you see initially with your clients? Uh, something that you say, hey, you know, out of you know a, a pool of twenty, there's something uh, typical um, among all of them. Sure, I think that the most common, if you're looking at like traits, is that what you mean? Right, correct. Yeah, yeah traits. traits. Um, so habits, I think that you know, the. Like what- yeah, habits, traits. I think if I were to think about traits, I think about there's a concept in psychology called internal locus of control, ah. which means that <laughs> you believe, right, that you control what happens in your universe. You believe that you control whether or not something's going to work out or it's going to pay off or it can happen or not. You aren't giving that control to things outside of yourself. It isn't that, oh, you know, the environment's going to do this and it's all going to fall apart. It's that I, they literally feel they can make things happen. They Is that a reality it. distortion we talked about? I don't, I don't think so. I think that like they, they're very good at figuring out what is it that I can control and what is it that I can't. And they're good at letting go of the gotcha. things they, they can't. So like a good example, even for the rest of us is that, you know, when you're on Twitter, you can see people raging about politics, right? The ability to control politics is like zero. I mean, it's close to it. I mean, you can vote, right? You can do those things, but you're not going to change if you don't like Biden's proposed tax policy. You're not going to, you're not going to change that. So you can focus on that. 
get angry, make bad decisions, get distracted, and not be productive. Or you can say, I really hate this thing, but I'm going to put it to the side and I'm really going to focus on making my business, you know, an extra this much money so that it doesn't really matter. Or, you know, I'm not going to focus on the things I can't control. I'm going to be able to drop those things and focus on double down on the things that I can push ahead and move forward. I think they're really, really good at that. Um, I also think that they're really super good at um, emotional control for the most part. I don't see a lot of guys or women um, who are bad with emotional control who end up doing very, very well. But that's like EQ, right? Like emotional uh, intelligence? Or, or is, that, is that different? It's a little different. You know, emotional control is really being able to, you know, somebody really makes you angry and it's not going to ruin your entire day. You may have like, you may have some words with them and that may not show a lot of great control in the moment, but you're going to be able to move on, be able to accomplish things, do things. You're not going to think about it all day. You're not going to let it bother you too much um, at the end of the day. I think also it, it's, it speaks to things like spending. Uh, you know, a lot of times you get a large amount of funding. You're not like burning through that too much. So there's a lot of different things that we can look at. So what, what's a good way to have emotional control besides just uh, rolling up a joint and <laughs> going outside? Well, well, I don't really recommend that people- No, that was a joke. I'm just going to be clear. Um, well, it's almost yeah, legal in New York now, right? I mean, they're very close. close. So. No, I'm, I'm fine with people legalizing, you know, whatever. If you want to tax it, people should have the freedom to make choices. Um, but I really do. I mean, I'm not going to go on my high horse about this, but I think your brain is like the most valuable asset you've got. So, you know, like I'm fine if you want to go out there and risk like breaking your arm or your legs or whatever. But like your brain, you got one. And if you damage it, it can really like kind of impact the rest of your life. So I'm always about silly things like wearing a helmet from, you know, while you're doing stuff first and also with drugs and things like that. I'm not a big like fan only because I think you've got this one brain. Is this the, the thing you want to mess around with? It's a real risk reward balance. And I don't judge people who want to take those risks. I just think that you have to recognize it is one and it's with the most valuable asset you've got. Do you believe that those who change the world are a little bit crazy because I've been growing up uh, like through all throughout my childhood I was told that the people who change the world for the better are often a little bit crazy do you believe that you know that's a really good question I think that people have to see the world differently who change it I don't know if that makes them crazy or not I think that my my definition of crazy is probably a little different than others um, but I, I do think so. that people who change the world have to have to see it differently, right? They have to see possibility. Um, you know, when you're creating cars, you can't really be looking at a world of horses the same way as everyone else. And I think that that's the kind of vision it requires. You have to be able to see things no one else sees. And I think, will other people call you crazy? Probably. And probably at the time. I mean, we're going <laughs> to see that. We'll see that with Neuralink, for example, definitely upcoming. Uh, if you see those studies with pigs and some of the things that they're doing, and there's obviously uh, some amazing benefit that could come from Neuralink. What makes you most excited about Neuralink? I think that Neuralink can be absolutely a game changer in health uh, mm -hmm. for those who have, you know, paraplegia, for those who are, are disabled, um, even for those, for example, who have things like locked in syndrome, where they're unable to communicate with the outside world. Um, so I do think that there's an incredible benefit 
to be had there. But I do think that there's also incredible risks that are are not being addressed just yet that I want to, I hope to see addressed soon. What are what are some of the things that you want to see addressed? I think that, for example, let's just say that you have a Neuralink um, and he said, you know, you could access memories, right? That's mm -hmm. a really cool thing that he talked about. But let's say you're a mom and you lost your five-year-old child. And now you have the ability to recall with perfect clarity every memory of that deceased child. Yeah. Yeah. You know, your memories deteriorate for a reason. You know, it helps you to move on. It doesn't give you that perfect clarity. But if you have the option of, as a parent who's lost a child, to recall and sit in perfect clarity with every memory, their first words, their, the first time they walk, um, that would mess you up. I mean, that would be a horrible, horrible thing. Would you want to keep accessing those memories? Absolutely. It would make you feel close to that person, et cetera. So, like, there's that element. Right. I mean, how much do we we aren't considering any psychological impacts of some of these things, too. Yeah, or like you I, I agree. I'm, I'm imagining a really dystopian film coming out of that. Yeah, it's Black Mirror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like a Black Mirror episode. I think the second thing, too, is the immersiveness and gaming experiences um, is that if you if you think about it with a VR headset, I think that technology will get better. I hope it does. Um, but if you have it actually implanted into your brain, and let's just say, you know, 1% of all people will develop schizophrenia or have that tendency. That's you know, one in 100 people. And you get that person, they have a neural link, and now you're going to like immerse them in an experience when they have this genetic disposition, uh, mm. when they're six, you know, like that's going to be a tough, yeah. uh, that's going to be very challenging. Um, and I think can trigger a lot of things that, you know, you may not expect yeah. that it would. So there's a lot of these considerations that I hope I don't I didn't see any psychologists on staff. And I I thought, you know, I hope that there are people who are looking at the possibilities on some of these other ends, because I think medically it's a game changer and it's amazing and it can be incredibly useful. I think on the other hand, uh, is... I definitely <laughs> believe uh, that Neuralink is going to change the world. And this is something that I, I read about quite often, Neuralink and, you know, how it's going to change. But I think I, I, one of my main worries is people with addiction, right, That's, that suffer from addiction, they're going to experience the stimulated orgasm, right? So, and this has been shown, there was a study done where this lady had uh, electrodes placed in her head and she was given a button. And each time she put press that button, she received like a 100% orgasm because it stimulated that, that point in her brain. And she actually mm -hmm. like stopped drinking water. She stopped eating. She just kept pressing that button over and over That's and over like again. Episode. <laughs> yes. Just so Jeez. she can, so she could just keep having an orgasm over and over and over again. And that's something that concerns me because like, then who delegates how many orgasms you can have a week? Does the company come in and say, okay, for $6, we'll give you three orgasms. Or like, are you allotted this amount? Like that's something that we're going to have to figure out. Subscription I... orgasms. <laughs> yeah. Elon's, Elon's already he already mentioned something about how they can. So, well, Neuralink would be be able to to cancel the the need for addiction, though. That's that's probably the beauty behind it. Where it's not so much that you're you're chasing uh, any of those feelings, which is you could override that and say, I no longer need, like like turn yourself into like a Spock, where you no longer need to feel emotions and you could just be pure. Productive. But then, where where does our humanity come from? Not in a Neuralink. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying her humanity chases an orgasm, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's wild. It is. You work typically with um, executives, right? Is that correct? 
Okay, what are uh, some CEO techniques? Founders. Gotcha. So, what are what are some techniques that you would provide or, or review for um, for delegation of of just I mean, delegation is probably as, as why does I need to go with that? Yeah, I think that you know, as people scale, you have to look at the thing that I ask them is you know, what's your highest and best use? So, when you think about who you are in the company, what's your best use to the company? Is it setting strategy? Is it vision? Is it making a few really important decisions? Like what is your highest and best use? And making sure that you're in a position to execute on that every single day, because that's what's going to move the needle for your company. Everything else, you start to find who can do that work. You want to pull yourself out of an individual contributor role as much as possible at an executive level. And you want to give that to people who are capable, sharp, fantastic, that you hire, who can execute on that and you can trust them to do that. You want yourself to be able to be able to focus on whatever it is that is your highest and best use. And for some people, you know, they're running, you know, a massive uh, company on, I don't know, maybe e-com company. And so they want to, their highest and best use is really thinking about strategy or thinking about, you know, something related to their distribution or solving certain problems that like, these are the things are making partnerships. Like these are the things that they should be focusing on. Um, and I think that's kind of where I start as I look at where are your best talents, where do you move the needle, what's your highest and best use, and then everything else try to pull off your plate. How do you figure out or, or what are your things you look for when hiring somebody capable? Because uh, you can hire many people, but it doesn't really equate to having one really good person. How do you find that really good person to hire? Is it just like a gut feeling or is it traits that you look for? I, you know, I think people... People are very bad evaluators of other people, and I don't, I don't put myself in a, at a category that necessarily is, is that great either. I mean, if you look at people's dating histories, right? Like, you don't go out on a date thinking this person's going to be a nightmare. Um, <laughs> and, um, so we're not always the best judge, um, even when we have great intentions and we, you know, we have great beliefs uh, and things look really good going in, and then you're like, oh my god, I made a massive mistake. Um, that's true for employees too. Everything can look great on paper and then, you know, things don't go as well as you had hoped. I think that what I do is I look for histories of execution. So if I were to give someone, I think poachable talent is often the best talent. You look at people who have done things at your level, uh, reliably and well at other companies at the same stage that yours is at. And I think that's really important also, like if you're going from zero to one, getting people who've done the zero to one journey, or if you're already a company that's like established, having somebody who is able to work within that framework. If you're somebody who's in the midst of raising, you know, a C round that you're hiring people who have already effectively been a part of companies at that level successfully. Um, and I think that that's kind of, that's why this talent goes from place to place. You see people going from Google to Facebook, from Facebook to wherever, you know, like they go through these various companies, not necessarily because they've, you know, had the urge to work at all of them, mm. but that the fact that they're at them and they're operating well and doing well is sometimes a proof that they're able to function in other companies. So if you're at Google though, you know, one thing to realize is that an engineer at Google may not be the right fit for a company going from like zero to one, where you're gonna need someone who's not, you know, maintaining software. Maybe there's somebody who's, you know, doing other types of work. So I think it's really important to match success. Um, and I think that that's a really, a more reliable strategy of hiring than thinking that you're going to know better or choose better um, if you're able to do it. And sometimes that takes money, so you're not able to do that right away. So you have to just go on like hungry and driven people. And I think that can also work pretty so well. 
my my previous job, I um, it, it's it's a long story as far as how it ended up getting to where it was, but it, it was something that I, I ended up leaving because I felt no sense of purpose. It was like a, like what do you say, highest and best use, right? That was the line. It's like mm-hmm. I had there was no there wasn't even high use. It was like no no use whatsoever, yeah. um, and it, it ended up putting me in like a really 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 dark place, um, to, to the point where I was like. I need to get out of here for my health. Like I, I was getting paid well. I was treated extremely well. I was surrounded by great people, um, but I felt no sense of purpose. I wasn't designed for for what I was, you know, there for. Um, and, and and it's funny because now I'm I'm in something completely different where I feel like oh, almost too much purpose. Like, <laughs> but it, it's uh, it's funny how you know you, you think of that. And then the reason I say that question too is could could you hire someone without them? really being assigned a specific position and then find out their their highest and best use and say this is what you're going to do if you want to stay with the company no that's a lot of that is like succession planning and things like that so i think that you know just hiring someone with an unknown role is probably a bad idea it is in a general sense but i do think that sometimes you'll find that when someone's at a company and they're a good performer that they have certain interests and that those interests will align with their skill set like usually if you really love doing something you're often really good at it and you're really right. motivated to get better at it um but i'm not sure that i would ever personally and I, you know just take someone on and pay them you know a six-figure salary to figure out what their right. best use is that's a real bet that I maybe so, would make. So maybe you would you would hire them for something that they are interested in or that there's already an initial level of like, yeah, this makes sense for you. And then if they say, hey, I'm really drawn to this, can you let me do that? Then say, yeah, I'm here to support you, go for it. I think that that's absolutely the case that you, and you find that a lot of people end up working uh, through the chain like that. You'll see people who go from like one executive, like kind of it, maybe they're in product and then they end up on another side of the business and, you know, then they end up doing more business development or something. You'll find that people will move throughout companies sometimes, but it sometimes also takes time to have those journeys. Yeah, right. So you have to be good in the place you're at and you have to be patient around that as well. Uh, but I think frustration in an employee is always a signal that somebody knows they're capable of more. And that's really something that needs to be addressed like gotcha. ASAP because it does crush yeah, morale. Yeah. Like if you feel frustrated at their job and you know you're capable of doing more and every day you're kind of having to underperform or not work to your potential or not really feel useful or not really feel fulfilled. I mean, your morale is just going to be um, kind of taken a little bit every day. That was, yeah. So that was the, the exact thing that happened in my previous position where I was hired. There wasn't an exact real role or position. It was, it was meant, to, it, long story with it, but ultimately there was no, you know, purpose for the job. So it's, it's, you, you go in and you're like, I could be doing more, but I'm not like, this is horrible. Uh, but yeah, yeah. thankfully I'm, I'm, I'm in a place now where I get to do a lot more. So, and we're, we're getting back to burnout too. And I, I really want to ask, how does the company make it clear that, look, we're suffering from burnout. What can they do? Like pretty low hanging fruit and like one or two things. I think the low hanging fruit is a cutoff. Like I said, uh, previously, I think that's a really easy one as company wide, like, Hey, you know, let's, hours, for the health of everyone, yeah, eight yeah. o'clock, like, do you really need to be on Slack or checking Slack? It's just the cognitive weight of that. Like, I need to check. I need to make sure. I need to be like, even if you're not doing anything after eight, to know that you have to check until literally the moment you go to bed is like being tethered to your job all the time. It's always working. Um, so I think that's a really easy thing that people can do, like that or weekends. Um, companies are really reticent to do that. I think that they um, they feel like it will show that they're not as committed. 
or something like that. I think also other things to do is connect with employees around things that are not transactional. Every conversation you have with people at work right now is transactional. Like, I need something from you. We're going to figure out a problem. But there's nothing that's like connecting, fun, interesting, that you learn about each other. Um, Remember a lot of cooler talk, right? Like yeah, nothing. Except for on Slack, which again is putting you on a screen and isn't really personal. But they don't do the things like you do. I think one of the things you do wonderfully is that like you have this fitness competition with the other guys. I'm not sure if everyone's on that or just uh, Cole. We've got 112 Oh, people. yeah, we've got 112 oh people uh, going on. And we've actually got some really uh, amazing YouTubers that are, like, they've got 100,000 subscribers there on there. And it, it, it's just building that's up. It's getting really amazing. There's some big personalities in it. It's pretty cool. And we've got a hashtag. I think that that's great, trend, too. You know? It's amazing. So, like, things like that within an office to say, like, hey, I'm gonna we're going to do a step contest. Because it really em encourages people to, like, get out and do something or some kind of contest that gets everybody involved. Um, that isn't necessarily like on a screen or in the office. Um, I think that there's a lot of those elements, but also encouraging people to take vacation, even though you're going to be at home, like take your vacation. I, I can't take a vacation. I have not figured that out. My whole professional career, I have not figured out. I, my vacation expires worthless every year. I can't. I, I you can't don't spend. take it. I never spend it. I never, I, every now and then I'll get a week here. Right. Go out to, I just, I can't like break off the time but my whole schedule is just always it's always busy and i just i just i can't find myself and also i have a, a bit like a team i make sure that they can get the vacation you know and they can go away and i, I just i don't know i just don't do it i need to do it more for sure you make it harder for your team if you don't take the vacation too. yeah yeah it definitely is it's not good I got these great cars like go for a ride i know <laughs> i know i'm sorry i know i know i backpack a lot i'm i'm, I'm going to go backpacking couple weeks and at least get out into the woods. Okay. What are some habits that you think I should develop before I go into medical school just to like prepare myself think for that, the medical industry? I think that, you know, energy management is, as I mentioned before, and like how you schedule things is really important and making sure that you're working to your strengths and not trying to push things into times that aren't natural for you. I think a lot of times we do that. Like whenever I schedule things that are like early afternoon, I'm always like kind of on my downward slope. Um, and in the mornings, I'm feeling great. So if I have a choice as to whether I'm going to schedule my high load work in the mornings or I'm going to have it at like, you know, two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm always going to choose morning. So think about when you're really on, when you can really do work, when you're really like at your best. And I would schedule the things that you really want to absorb for those times. I would also make sure that you're giving yourself you know, adequate breaks between things so that you're able to continue to hit it hard. I'd make sure that I don't cut out exercise mm -hmm. uh, because it's more important than you think in like your cognitive yes. ability. Oh yeah, it is. That's, yeah. that's the biggest change to it's my life I've thing. made. And really? It's, it's the biggest improvement I've had over the past year I, is adding an hour and a half of exercise. Uh, I'm so much more uh, laid back, like things that I used to get <clears throat> angry about, I just don't. It's so weird. It's just like, I, I'm like, okay, well, that sucks. And then I'm like, all right, well, move on. I mean, it's so weird, but it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I've been saying this for a long time. If I were if I were just some mad scientist that was able to create a pill with all the benefits of physical activity, I would be a trillionaire right now. <laughs> I mean, it's would. so insane. You absolutely would. And it's yeah. yeah, I think it absolutely is one of the biggest things that people do. And even when I talk with people, I mean, that's the baseline things that I address immediately. I call them like foundational items. I look at, are you sleeping? 
Are you exercising? Like these are really important things to your performance and how you're going to function. Because you know, as you've noticed, it impacts your mood, it impacts your focus, it impacts your attention, it impacts your ability to execute. It it's going to impact your personal life. Like, I mean, there's a lot of things that exercise alone can bring. It's going to help you sleep better if you're not sleeping well now. Oh, yeah. um, so there's a lot of things that are really important to do. And sleep alone, again, is really important. So I look at some foundational items first and then just kind of make sure that those are on check and then kind of go from there. Uh, looking at whatever problems that they might have or things they want to overcome. On, a, on energy management, and I, I know this is not the ideal person to look at by like a million miles, but I, I was watching some stuff on Hitler just because I, I figured I was like, well, this man was... I gave a fair warning. But I, I figured I was like, this man was... And, and like take these words very lightly, but he was a great leader in the sense of he, he was able to get people riled up and he understood that that component. And one of the things I found really interesting, there was a, a, a shortish documentary on him, uh, but he took random naps in, in, whenever he felt like it. Like in the middle of the day, he would take a random nap. Is that um, in between I, the methamphetamine? Is that the... <laughs> after yeah, petting his dog in between the methamphetamine and, and everything else. Um, but have, have you have you read anything on that? Or, I mean, on, you know, to, to break a little bit free of that, any thoughts on, on mid, like a siesta, like a mid-afternoon nap or something like that? You know, for me, I'm somebody who if I took a nap, I would never sleep. Gotcha. So, but I do understand that they have benefits for other people. And I completely support the fact that if you're somebody who feels rejuvenated from a nap, then it's absolutely worth it. I think that if you take too long of a nap, it's, it's shown to be a bit counterproductive. Oh, yeah. You can feel like you're dragging throughout the day, but you do want to taking those brief naps if you feel that you need them, super important. And I, I'm really someone who likes being attuned to their body, like mm -hmm. in what you eat, you'll find that like, if you're really good with tuning in, you'll start to crave things that you need and you'll start to notice patterns within yourself. Much like, you know, we crave water when we're thirsty and we're kind of dehydrated, we'll start craving certain foods because we have certain nutritional deficits. We have certain things that we're looking to fill and you'll notice that, you know, the more that you tune in. So I think that if your body is telling you, hey, you need to sleep right now, you should. Um, and I think that the more we get back to looking at what our natural patterns are and being able to read ourselves, probably the better we're going to function. Now, how do you go about, for somebody that isn't as tuned into their body, right? And it kind of sounds like you're saying, find your circadian rhythm, like your ups in, in your days. How do you recommend somebody going about figuring out what their rhythm is and how it's impacted? Do you tell them to like grab a journal, write down, you know, at like one thirty, I started to feel a little bit hungry and track it. Do you do that? Or like, what's the best way to become in tune with yourself? That's a good question. I think that usually I, I almost always have people walk me through their day. Like, tell me, take me through like, okay, pull up a calendar day and like, take me through it. What did you have for breakfast? When did you get up? What's your routine? Like, like, tell me about your day, walk me through it. And you learn a lot from people, uh, from those types of th those types of conversations, right? Sometimes they get up and you'll have people who, and, and thankfully I don't have a lot of people who do this, but they're like, you know, I go in the refrigerator, I grab a soda and I'm like, oh my God, like that's a, <laughs> that not a great habit to have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. um, but, um, but I do think that like, you'll find that people have, and you ask them, okay, so why do you do that? Well, in the morning I feel groggy. Right? So that's already like, that's a flag. Why are you getting up and feeling tired? What do we need to look at there? I often recommend that people will get blood work, like make sure that everything's good. Like if you have things like that that are happening and you're starting to feel tired when you don't have reason, when's the last time you had a physical? When's the last time you had your blood work drawn? Like when have you really looked at to make sure that you're on track? Um, 
and I think that that's super important. But yeah, so I just kind of walk through their day with them and ask them really pointed questions about like, why are you doing that? What's That's really interesting. What makes you decide to do this or that? Or what time do you get up? And uh, when do you start working? What's the first thing you do? A lot of times the first thing they do is uh, they get on social media They or you know they check email. Um, and so kind of asking, you know, well, why do you do that? And sometimes it's not even because they care, it's just compulsive. You know, they just want to see what's happening. Um, and they don't take a break, like, you know, with a cup of coffee or relax or, you know, look at a newspaper or, you know, read something online or whatever it is that they want to do. Um, or they don't have a morning routine at all. So I think that there's a lot of things that you can tap into when you when you look at someone's day. And I would encourage people to just look at their own day and say, hey, like, where's your energy highest? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And ask yourself those questions. I think a lot of us are just going through life very automatic uh, in very automatic patterns, and we don't challenge them. And I think it's really important to say, why am I doing this? Why am I reaching for that? Why am I feeling tired? Why am I getting up and feeling totally sleepy? Um, you know, like all of those different. Do you have any other uh, methods that you use for time efficiency throughout the day or for just being more efficient in general? Yeah, I actually have a little, I know this is going to sound like one of these where you kind of flip it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, a, it's like for 30 minutes an hourglass and it's just totally weird whatever but i flip it when i'm doing tasks so that after a while I, I make sure that i get my eyes away from the screen i make sure i step away from the screen um and then i'm kind of more effective in what i do so my goal is always to spend as much time as it takes on every task i have uh but i mean like as much time as it's supposed to take mm -hmm. so i could easily sit in front of a television put on netflix and getting through my emails will take me three times longer than if i just sat down cranked it out and got it done. But in order to have that time of sitting down and getting it done, I have to step away first because I can't just have a wall of meetings, get work done, and and feel I would just go crazy. I think I'd have to stand up, walk around, do something, or I'm going to drag that task out. So my goal is always, how can I make the task just take what it's supposed to take and not drag it out longer? Because every time I do that, I'm making myself less efficient. So actually, by taking the time away, making myself spend less time at work, which is something that's kind of counterintuitive, but it, it actually plays out if when you start recording. So time. fully, fully commit to what you're doing. If, if you're, if you're writing up something, write it up. Don't go on Twitter. Yes. Do 10 things at yeah, once. Right. Yeah. Have, have your time. You want to go for a walk, go for a walk, but probably don't be on email at the same time. You know, studies show that it takes us about 15 to 20 minutes to reorient to a task. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, so you pull yourself away and now you have to get back into the same headspace and you're costing yourself time. So if you're going to do something, jump in, do it. Don't look at other windows, get it done and then like reward yourself, go on Twitter, do something else. But if you, um, you know, if you start distracting yourself, that one task is just going to drag and it's completely time efficient. And I think why people believe they have to work you know, 100 hour weeks, you're probably doing, you're not doing more than a certain amount of work. Our brains just aren't built to do that, or at least not yet. So um, we're just not capable. Good. So one, one last question on that topic. Uh, back in November, I had my first ever panic attack. Not, not something to be proud of or to pride yourself in, uh, but I, I ended up working till probably 1230 in the morning. And I was just, I was just in the zone. Like if, you, if, you, if you've ever been in the zone, you know the zone and you're like, I'm in the zone. Um, and I was at my computer, I was at my desk right here. And I was like, oh boy, it's already, it's 10.30. My back kind of hurts. I'm, I'm just going to go in my bed. I'll take my laptop with me. I'll leave this over here and I'll go in there. And um, I put it down and 12.30 came around or what, 12.20. And I just had so much energy still. Um, and then I went into the state of like, what's going on? I don't feel like I'm actually here right now. Nothing makes sense. And then just full on panic attack. My body was shaking. It was like, it was 
bad. It was super duper bad. Um, and I, I mean, even just from, you know, from talking about what we've talked about here and even, you know, from, from that time to today, I, I think I've learned that you just have to, you have to have cutoffs, you have to go out for a walk, you have to not let something fully control you. But what other advice would you have for like something, like not letting that happen to anyone else? <laughs> Well, I think, you know, you have to think about where does the panic come from? I mean, a lot of times panic attacks have no particular origin, and that's what makes them so difficult for people. Um, but sometimes, too, they're often brought about by people having high amounts of stress. So I would look at stress management rather than anything else first and see, all right, well, if there's no clear like trigger for it. There wasn't anything right. you're doing that like triggered right. some kind of previous trauma. There's no like nothing like that. Um, it's probably just a high amount of stress. And so looking at if you can do more effective stress management, and sometimes that means, and I know you all drink a lot of coffee. Uh, sometimes that means coffee since then. I, I've cut out all caffeine. All right. So yeah. that's another thing is that like looking at caffeine intake because it, it is a central nervous system stimulant, right? So trying to look at limiting caffeine, making sure you get your rest, uh, having effective stress management, which means like exercising, those types of things. Those are baseline things that anybody can do and having those cutoffs. But if you start to, if you experience those things, a lot of times they don't come from any particular trigger. And so, you know, it can make people very, it can make them kind of scared to have something like that happen again, because they feel like, I'm, you know, I'm having a heart attack or, you know, right. they, and it's, yeah. it's often confused with a heart attack. Yeah, um, and I thought I was having a heart attack. It was, like, I'm laughing about it, but it was like the worst experience of my life. It was, oh, yeah. yeah, not fun. <laughs> not it, fun. It, it, and it's so weird because me and Sean, uh, me and Steven, not me and Sean, me and Steven were talking about our panic attacks because uh, I, I had them whenever I was working at Hetty while going to school full time. It was just, I was just working too much, too many stressors. And our panic attacks were different. And, you know, the symptoms of it were different. Whenever mm -hmm. I had mine, I just wanted to sprint. Like, my brain said, run. And I, I was just like, I just had to sprint. And his was different. Mine was more like the, the what is it, like the fight or flight? Mine mine wasn't flight, though. Mine was just uh, deer in headlights. Like, it was just literally like the like i just couldn't move you're like frozen you're like i i literally think i'm dying maybe i'm already dead i don't know <laughs> not uncommon to see people come into the er with panic attacks who have symptoms so similar to a heart attack they end up running you know tests and making sure that their heart is okay so i mean it's a completely normal experience but if you notice that you're overwhelming yourself with so much work and stress and you know it's the like things are right yeah and there are low-grade stressors too that we don't think about like the fact you're living in a pandemic like i know that we don't like talk about that a lot anymore <laughs> but like we're literally living in a pandemic like that's insane yeah. so like there's yeah. a low-grade stressor all the time around like mm -hmm. infection and death mm -hmm. and all of those things that are happening around you we, we kind of block them out but they're they're always there and then there's things around uh, you know, like the news and politics and, you know, irritation, people angry on Twitter, that's a low grade stressor. Um, so that there's all sorts of things that are happening in the background. And I would also encourage you to like, try to think about what those things are and try to kind of limit those as much as possible. So like, if you're somebody who watches the news every night, like I probably wouldn't, like I personally don't watch the news more than like once or twice a week because I just find it stressful and unnecessary. You know, like I'm gonna hear the same message every happened. day. Yeah. So it's never going to be great. If it's important so, enough, you'll hear about it. Absolutely. Maybe my mom will call or something like, you know, but it's truly like, look at the stressors right now. And it could be even personal stressors in your life as well. Maybe you have a parent who's sick or, you know, pet that's sick or, you know, whatever it happens to be. But um, you try to reduce the amount of stressors that you can and, um, and kind of form the best foundation that you can. A way to look at it 
is that we're all walking around with a cup and that the more full that cup is, the more likely it is to spill over. So you wanna get like empty your cup as much as possible from stressors so that it takes a lot more to spill things over for you. And I think that's a good rule of thumb for us all is to kind of reduce what's in that cup. So we're just walking around and we can kind of put more in it when we need to without having some kind of bad after effect. Yeah. So I know I know you, you don't advocate drug use, neither, neither do we. Thinks, you know, some things that are, are, are curious, right? That's the whole podcast. So, you know, places like DC and Colorado and, you know, Oregon decriminalizing some psychedelics like mushrooms, for example, and you can, you can get them almost commercially, you know, in Washington, DC. But, but my, my question really goes back to like high performing people and using micro dosing. Mm -hmm. That's something that's become pretty popular and talked about, especially like on TikTok and, and places. But what are, what are your thoughts on that of micro dosing of high performing executive teams and things like this? No, again, like, <laughs> no, 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 exactly. no, like, you know, I think that there's really interesting studies done on microdosing. And one of the more interesting ones that I've seen in the past is how it alters your brain's sense of time. So for example, that's why, you, you know, people say, well, I have increased uh, creativity and focus because your brain isn't necessarily always mapping time the same way, according to some studies. Um, a lot of the results are based on self-report, which no, I think that that has validity. Um, but I, again, I probably wouldn't, I don't know the long-term effects of microdosing. I do know that over time, we do know that it has an impact on the brain. Um, and people report very positive impacts, you know, initially. So it's not for me to say that it doesn't help people. I think it can. And I think that people report very good experiences. Uh, I think I go back to my phrase of like, you've got one brain and it's your most valuable asset. And if you're somebody who's running a massive company, is that the thing that you want to to do? Is, is that the risk you want to take? Because really, the thing sitting in your skull, I mean, that's your billion dollar asset right there. And so what do you want to expose it to? What kind of risk do you want to take? And, you know, maybe it isn't a risk, but it also isn't well studied to know that. I know that the studies that we've seen have been primarily since like around 2018, but they haven't been as extensive as I'd like, and they haven't been as long term as I'd like. So I would love to see you know, we know that recreational uh, dosages of hallucinogens of any kind can have really terrible impacts. Um, microdosing, I don't know if that has a cumulative effect or not. I don't know what the outcome is. So while I'm fascinated by it, because I think that anything that helps us to access some areas that we have challenging, uh, a, a challenging ability to access is probably fascinating to look at. I don't know if I want to be that guinea pig that taps into that. So, so I'm interested to talk to people who do it. Um, what are the things or what are the things that you're going to look for in a study? Like what would you, if you were to design a study that went around and, you know, just studied these different psychoactive drugs, what would you look for or what would you design? Well, I mean, ethical, ethically, it's very challenging too, right? I can't get a group of people and say, okay, you're going to take mushrooms for a year every day. And this group isn't. Uh, it's hard to have a study like that. So you have to wait <laughs> until you have a group of people uh, who've been microdosing for a while and then kind of get their self-reports. Like what, how they do studies on cocaine, how they do studies on heroin. I mean, they don't ever assign people to use this every single day and then, you know, study what happens. Um, you get people who are long-term users or people who do use regularly and you do your studies from there and you compare it to those who don't use or report not never using and you kind of can compare their brains compare functioning compare a number of other things so i guess that you know it's going to take some time before we have the ability to 
really examine what the what the brain looks like and what it may have done or not done, uh, the impacts it's had or not had, how it maybe structures the way that we think and perceive things, if it changes how we think or perceive things. It's fascinating because even therapy alone, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy changes the way that our brain functions. So you, if you do an fMRI like prior to uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety, and you do one after therapy where someone has gotten no medication at all, you will see that their brains literally function differently. Um, so our brains can be influenced by a lot of different things. Um, medication, no medication, the way our environment exposes us to things, very structured therapy, and certainly like mushrooms, and the thing that I would want to protect against is people using them for self-medicating. Like you have problems focusing when you could really be addressing that in a different way that's like healthier and probably more effective. And I think that that's what I go back to too, is people are really, like with CBD, for example, I think CBD is amazing. I actually gave CBD uh, to a dog that was uh, struggling. My, my one dog had some problems. Um, and I think it can be really useful, but I also think that some people who have maybe genuine anxiety disorders, instead of treating them, they're like using uh, supplements they can buy off the, uh, off the counter instead of actually just treating the problem and living a better life. Um, so it's just so like I do... slapping a Band-Aid on a big, uh, a big open wound. Yeah. yeah, and it's not for me to say, you know, whether or not they should they should do that, but I do think that how you use something is really important too. And I think if you're looking at it for innovation and creativity and something that's kind of jump-starting you, everybody has to weigh the risk reward for themselves. Um, but, you know, I think that's a very different use case than somebody who, you know, is, is trying to use it for symptom management because they can't attend to things. And so we spent, so we are just like born into existence, right? Out of nothing. And we spend our whole lives building up, you know, this consciousness and this ego and, and these, this very unique personality to each person. What the hell happens to all this when we die? Where does, what, what, you know, do you have any thoughts? That is where a fantastic question. I wish, I wish I knew the answer to that. You know, <laughs> I am fascinated. I hope this is not on the recording that we released, but I am fascinated, <laughs> fascinated by these studies. And I'm sure you've read them. If I'm sure you've read them, Sean, if you're interested in this. But like of the people who say, you know, I died on the operating table, mm -hmm. but then they can also tell you the music that was playing when supposedly they weren't around, um, that the, you know, that the doctor was playing at the time. And that like, I'm, it just, it blows you away, right? So what is consciousness? What is, um, what is that thing? And, uh, my what i'm kind of fascinated by and this is going to sound so odd but I'm, I'm going to share it anyway is that there have been more and more research in physics around how there's far more than three dimensions i mean mm -hmm. have yeah. you guys like looked at yeah. this okay so like lisa randall famous physicist at harvard she's a theoretical physicist has noted there's probably like seven eight dimensions out there mm -hmm. so i always wonder if those are outside of our sensory perception we can only do three um what's there what's that about um, and like, what does that contain? And like, is that something to do with, uh, I don't know what happens. Uh, there's no way to really know, right? I mean, there was a great explanation that somebody gave. I can't remember who the famous person was that they said that they thought death was like getting out of a car, that you go from one place to another. And I think that that's probably the best explanation. When I think about it in my head, that's kind of how I think about it is that, yeah, the door closes on this body, this life. And like, Whatever is there is there. If there is consciousness aside from my, you know, neurological firing, mm -hmm. there is some evidence. It seems like there is consciousness outside of our neurological firing. Um, or the, the worst, I guess, uh, consideration is that 
what if we just kind of don't know the point of death exactly when when that happened? It's kind of scarier to me because, you know, during the Civil War, we didn't know when people died. We'd give them a little kick, and then if they didn't move, oh, we'd yeah. toss them Cards. Yeah, didn't have indicators and things, yeah. <laughs> no, but like, who's to say we have the right indicators now? Right. Like, I mean, yeah. it's so it fascinates me to say, I would like to think that we do, otherwise it's kind of terrifying. But, you know, what if we are around a little bit longer or that we have, um, you know, mm. an ability to have consciousness post uh, our bodies kind of halting for a bit or, and maybe that goes away or maybe it doesn't. Um, yeah, what do you think? So you know, so I got a thought on it. Uh, I mentioned the show Therapy uh, earlier. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's 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 like a sensation. You should go look it up. It's on Twitch and okay. TikTok and all this. The Therapy Gecko, Lyle Drescher is his name, <laughs> and he asks people. You know, it's a people call in show, but he asks people constantly. What do you, you know, what happens when we die? You know, uh, very often he asks the question. And one guy that called in was kind of a nutcase, but he had the best answer I've ever heard. And it's like, well, we go back to the same place we were before we were born. And, and it's to me, that's a little reassuring because I'm I am I'm one that's always stressed out about death. When I, when I was young, I had panic attacks about dying. I felt really tiny and my hands were really wow. big and like it, the world was closing in on me very often. And um, and so I've always kind of just really thought about it, found it really fascinating. So that was that's the best explanation I, I can I can hear. He's like, well, what were you doing in 1951? It's like, well, I, I don't know. It's like, OK, well, what were you doing in 1870? It's like, OK, well, things will be OK. Basically, are you really interested in life extension? I, I'm, ex, 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 you know, indefinitely interested in life, life extension, extension, and you know, transplanting my consciousness into into a virtual machine or a robot. Actually, I was going to bring that possible. up. I was going to bring that yeah. up. Neuralink. I'm excited about it. I mean, I'm interested in what it could be because can you get your consciousness outside of your body? Like it's Based so ingrained. In. It might not just all live in our brain. You know, it's. I mean, you can, how much of your body can you cut off until you're still functional? I've, we, I think we found that all the arms and legs and you know most everything except for your lungs and your chest and your head is is all you need to i have a friend that's work he was working at spacex and he's he's now become a cto um at another company that's working with Neuralink, and it's called inheritance ai and he's a coder brilliant coder and what they're working on is building an interface for whenever you die they create an artificial intelligence based off your memories and your actions uh. whenever you're alive um, so let's say you have you have the Neuralink implant, and then the Neuralink implant mm-hmm. records all of this in small tidbits of data, and then whenever you die, it generates an AI based on all your past history and events. So your so family members, you, but it's not. You but that's though, more right? for the people you leave behind. Right? Leave behind, yeah, yeah, yeah. But not the thing is, what determines consciousness? Is it our memories, or is it? You know the neuronal pathways that make us who we are you know what that i think that's going to be one of the questions that we're going to have to figure out during my lifetime at least is going to be what makes us conscious yeah i think the sense of self would be really interesting to see if you can replicate because you can replicate actions but can you replicate this kind of sense of knowing who you are feeling like you know that kind of that knowing that sense i think that that would be really fascinating because there are robots who can replicate every action and every motion but do they have a sense of self um i don't know that would be really hard but i don't think the outside world to the outside world i don't think it's maybe perceptible i'm not sure thank you so our last question and i ask this to everybody i never tell them what the question's going to be because i think it's a really good one is there any question or topic we haven't talked about that you think is important that we talk about today? 
I think that the topic that I would want to talk about, at least if you have an audience out there, is that, you know, when I talk to people, no matter what age they are, no matter where they're at in life, no matter how successful they are or unsuccessful or struggling or striving, one of the things that I notice is that most people know that they can be better than where they're at right now. Like there's that internal sense of knowing that they're capable of more. And, you know, something I'd want to talk about is like that sense of identity and what it knows about ourselves and what it will drive within us and what it will determine in your life. Because I think there are people who are gonna choose to go with that and there are people who are gonna put it aside. And so I guess that sense of identity, that that kind of internal knowing, what do you think personally, I guess, makes people act on that sense that they know? Like you can talk to a group of high schoolers and you go, you know, right now, deep down, you know that you can do more and be more than you are right now. What's gonna be the differentiator between the people who do it and the people who just live with it and know it. And I'm wondering what you guys think about that. You know, I hit you with a hard question and then you just hit me with one. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> Turned it, it right back on. Yeah, I, from, from my personal experience, I, I find that the people who have a lot of self-doubt are often the ones that most likely belong in the places they don't think they belong. And the people who are in the places they are today probably not in all cases and in, in, in all of this, but maybe they, they don't belong there. And and for myself, if if I didn't get the opportunity that I had today for this position I'm in right now, um, I would say there's no, I'm not, I'm not like worthy of what I, I I'm not a, like, you know, way up there, but, but it, to me, I'm like, you know, it, a year ago, if you asked me if I could do what I do today, they'd be like, no, you, you have to be meant to do that. Like, you can't just do that. And, and just through a, a series of, of just paths that, you know, work themselves out. I'm where I am, where I am today. And I like, I look at it and like, how did that happen? Um, and just, I think it's just a confidence thing for, for myself. And that's why I asked about reality distortion before. Uh, I, I feel like maybe yeah. some people need to have that. <laughs> we, we need to, or just, it's, I, I don't like the term that like, I think there was something better to use, but we, we need to believe in ourselves a little bit more, figure out what we, what we truly are capable of. And, and you know, my, my, uh, my boss described, he's like, I'm going to help you break through your glass ceiling. He's like, it's here. We're going to go through that. Um, and you know, there, there's probably layers of glass ceilings as you go through it. Um, but definitely many glass ceilings have been broken for, for myself. What do you think, Sean? I, you know, I think it's, um, I, I think that people always want to do better. Like you find something broken, you want to fix it. You want to, you find a puzzle, you know, you want to put it together. You want all the pieces to be where they belong. And so like, I think everybody has this you know mind's eye of like your perfect self and where does it want to go like i want to be in a cabin in the woods right yeah. away from everybody so like what's all the steps i need to take to get there i was just talking to lisa about that today she's like no mm -hmm. you're crazy we're not doing that <laughs> we're not like, going. you're gonna do that by yourself i'm like all the steps in my whole life have been toward that but, <laughs> you know but it's just like that's like a it's a it's, you know not real but I think that everybody wants to just, you know, be their best self, truly deep down, like, and whether we motivate them to or not, or we've stopped motivating them, like I find at work now, I, I, I used to be extremely motivated, like suggest everything. And like, I still do, I still try to, but I've definitely found myself more demotivated lately because you get told so many times no, or you just don't have the power or you don't have the bandwidth or you don't have the, the backing of management say all the time. And, and you're just like, well, I'm going to stop suggesting things down because you get so far. And then it's like, you get to the end and they're like, oh, stuff. And that, that we would do so much if we did that, but no, 
you know, we're not going to do that. And so you just, after you hit that, that roadblock so many times, it's, it's really demotivating. But, um, but I think that just everybody wants to be like, um, you know, the, the best of all possible worlds. See, everybody imagines this utopia place, you know, I think, and, and what it is and everybody's is different, you know, and it's kind of unique. I think yeah. that's the unique thing is just trying to find people's, what is their perfect, you know, best of all possible worlds. I like to use that term all the time, but it's, uh, it, but it's true. It's like, Oh, I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a motivating thing for me, for sure. Cause it's like, it's, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to fix something or build something or invent something or, you know, that's, I like to create things. So varying and, levels. So for me, and can, can you repeat your question? Cause I want to make sure I'm, I'm and thinking about it correctly. Oh, I just asked, you know, if everybody kind of deep down that I've ever spoken with, I mean, the people who do very well, people who are struggling, starting people from my hometown, like deep down, most people know that they can be better than where they are right now. So what do you think is the differentiator between those who will kind of stay with that knowing and kind of live their life and know that they could have been more and the people who actually chase it and try to find that and take that on and push themselves and kind of how to get to that place what's the difference i don't know the difference because i don't I, I can only experience uh, talk from my experience but um as a kid growing up with dyslexia and you know dyscalculus and stuff like that i was always told no you'll never do this you'll never do that and for a long time i listened to it you know i really thought i was a piece of shit i was going nowhere couldn't do anything and then i just you know said why um and i just started following you know treating life as a kind of like conscious consciousness and life as like an equation right you throw something into it it jumbles it up and it gives it back to you kind of like a lot of machine and i found that life for me is i tried to, if i find something interesting i'll just throw it out there and life will either throw it right back at my face and say, no, that's stupid, or I'll just run and do this amazing thing. I'll meet new, amazing people. So my inner drive to be better than I was yesterday is to, one, help people um, and limit human suffering, but two, just see where this wild ride can take me. I, I kind of also think of it as a roller coaster, right? If life's a roller coaster, you know, I, I want to end up at the end you know, beat up, scarred, and lived it to its fullest, not this some, I want to take risk. I want to figure out what those risks lead me. Um, I don't want to live this contained, easygoing life with no highs, no lows. I want to experience the full ride and say, wow, that was awesome. And if that makes any sense. So that's why. I think there was a Hunter Thompson quote in there somewhere. Possibly, possibly. Yeah. I, 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 I pull... <laughs> I pull, uh, I read a bunch of things and I go, wow, and then I forget the author's name. So if I took from an author, uh, I would like to give them the credit, but I don't know who they are. So I'm not saying that's for me. No, I love that the notion of like identity and who you believe you can be. And I think the, the big secret really is that people can be whoever they want to be. And that when you sit at tables with people who do incredibly well, you realize there's nothing really that special about them aside from the risk that they took or the efforts that they made or the belief that they had. But like, they're not the super genius that a lot of times people think or, you know, and they're not people who, you know, 
are any different or more special. And I think that that's the thing to walk away from that for me that I walk away from all the time. And it's always inspiring to me because people find what works for them. They double down on their strengths. They kind of keep their weaknesses wherever they're going to be and they just move forward. And I think all of us have that potential. We all have things we're amazing at. And if we can double down on that, we can really leverage that to get wherever we want to go. As we're wrapping up, because we're wrapping up on, uh, or closing in on a hundred and or an hour and 53 minutes. I don't know why I say it, 153 minutes. Yeah, I've been uh, on the storage on my phone. It's had to delete some things <laughs> to come back on. <laughs> so are there any social media accounts that you want to promote or any upcoming events that you would like to promote? Uh, no, but thank you so much for asking. People can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Gurner, D-R-G-U-R-N-E-R. And uh, I'm always happy to chat. So feel free to pop on and interact. And I'm happy to connect with whomever. You are. You are very interactive on Twitter. I love Oh, every single Definitely. every single interaction I've had with you is has been amazing. You're you're such a sweetheart, and I, I appreciate talking to me, the little guy. It's it, I, I appreciate you so much. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah, thank you. Hey, thank we're you all the on. same out there. Great to meet you guys. I feel like I knew you before coming on the show. Just in your, uh, Twitter presence. I don't think. Yeah, same. Am I? I don't think I'm connected with Steven. I believe I follow you because I'm like, wow, this person's really wise. I'm like, I, I'm very selective with who I follow on Twitter. I, I try to keep it below 200 just because I, I try to keep out noise rather and like focus it on what I want to hear. And uh, when Cole was like, yeah, go follow her, you know, learn learn about her, you know, and I was like, okay. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, you are, you are well worth following. Very inspirational. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, a, a lot of wisdom that I could take away. And even through the comments, because you, you end up responding to people. And, um, and, and and even through your replies, there's there's a lot of wisdom in that too. You know, I try to, my Twitter strategy is I follow everyone outside of the kind of job that I do because it helps me learn so much about the jobs that they do. So like real estate Twitter, finance Twitter, Bitcoin folks, um, you know, whoever is out there, I wanna learn from them, artists, uh, physicists, I wanna learn more about those things because uh, so I think that that makes my own thinking a lot more interesting and it makes me more creative. So to be able to see things from different angles. So thank you guys for always being such a great presence on Twitter. And <laughs> thank hopefully you. we can keep interacting. Yeah, I was just saying, don't, don't feel bad if you don't follow me, by the way. There's there's a lot of random posting too that goes on there. I, I, I won't feel offended know. whatsoever. No, Som- I didn't know you were a part of this. Yeah, yeah so. some, sometimes I'll be tweeting and and it's just like me shit posting for the day. I just like, I don't know, just like dump something on there, shit post. And then show, uh, Dr. Julie will uh, comment and I'm like, oh shit, I forgot. <laughs> so somebody respectable follows me. <laughs> Thanks so much. Have a Thank great you. evening. Yeah, Bye. Bye.